and welcome to the Field Notes podcast from Arosha. I'm Bryony Loveless and I'm a researcher with Arosha. And I'm Peter Harris and I've been with Arosha from the beginning when we established a field study centre and bird observatory in the south of Portugal in 1983. Now, we all know that the rapid thinning of life on Earth and the climate crisis can often feel overwhelming. So it's our hope that in this podcast you'll hear some remarkable and original perspectives from people we know who are working to care for creation around the world. I realize uh, climate risks and climate hazards are everyday part of my daily life. Uh, we get 10 tropical cyclones every year. We get El Nino, La Nina. So all, almost all kinds of climate disasters happen in my country. And so even without climate change, we are concerned about climate. People are dying by the thousands, even now, not even in the future. Hello, and welcome back to this episode of the Field Notes podcast. Today, we got to speak to Dr. Radel Lasko, who is an Russia International Trustee, um, who has almost 40 years of experience in national resources and environmental research conservation. He's also one of the authors of the recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, and the 2007 co-winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. So it was a real honour to speak to him. And I'm wondering, Peter, if you could share some of your takeaways from our conversation today. Yes, it was great, wasn't it, to have somebody who's been so directly involved in the very latest report, which, although we expected it to be uh, dire, was perhaps even more alarming than many of people had predicted. And so to get his personal uh, insights into that, and also I think hearing from a scientist working in a part of the world where every day, as he explains, the impacts of climate change are felt very directly, and the way that he helped us to understand exactly how all of those things are connected was was quite special. Mm. I definitely feel often when we talk about climate change that the conversation can quickly become quite depressing. But with Riddell, it really felt like there was uh, an optimism and a faithfulness and a peacefulness to him, which I think is quite rare, particularly when talking to scientists who deal with these horrifying statistics day to day. And I found that conversation really encouraging, despite how discouraging the report itself is. You should hang out with older people more often, uh, Brian, <laughs> because he talked about the arc, actually, that he's seen from the early days of indifference to his work and indifference to the work of climate scientists mm. and what he called the echo chamber, where they were just talking to each other, to now a very widespread global realisation that this is an acutely important problem and we have very little time now to to do much about it. So, yes. And, and I also appreciated, I don't know if you did, the way that he helped me anyway understand exactly how in a place like the Philippines, mm. conservation is critically important, not just for the conservation of biodiversity, but for mitigating the impacts of climate change and climate mm. regulation and other things like that. It was it was really good. He also touches on climate justice and we had a kind of short conversation about anger and, and forgiveness and the role that that plays in countries that are emitting a lot less carbon, um, but are maybe feeling the consequences more drastically. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I found it quite emotional and um, 
really enjoyable and very interesting. So I hope you do too. Let's jump in. Welcome, Riddell, to the Field Notes podcast. It's a real privilege to have you with us today, particularly when you're undertaking such a busy period in your working life. Um, I wonder if you could just start off by telling us about your background and your journey into becoming a scientist and whether nature has always been important to you. Well, uh, yeah, uh, Rayoni, uh, let me start by saying that I wanted to be a scientist as long as I can remember. I was five years old, six years old, reading uh, you know, books about science. And uh, I was really fascinated. I wanted to be an astronaut, actually. I wanted to go to the moon, but I didn't realize uh, it was even possible. It was uh, before 1969, so mid-60s, so before Neil Armstrong uh, stepped, uh, stepped on the moon. And uh, so it kind of developed. I wanted to be a scientist. And in high school, I really fell in love with the environment, ecology, uh, that was in the mid 70s. And from then on, I just uh, sort of combined um, this love for nature and uh, science. And so I, I, in a sense, I'm living my dream uh, in terms of you know having a career in science as well as uh, nature. It sounds like you've always been a visionary then. You were hoping to go to the moon before it was even possible. So maybe we can hope to save the planet when it doesn't necessarily always feel possible. Well, it's probably because of my mother. Uh, she inspired love for, for learning and reading. Uh, you know, it sort of started there, uh, Brioni. Oh, and where did you grow up, Riddell? I, I grew up uh, about 60, 80 kilometers south of Manila. Uh, in the Philippines, uh, you're still you're still living there now and working out of the Philippines, I think. Yes, Peter, uh, I live about sixty kilometers south of Manila, so about an hour's drive from Metro Manila. But you've been a big contributor to international science as well, and and one of the authors of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, particularly the one that just came out. In fact, how have you found? It has been participating in international science out of of your part of the world. Well, uh, I started uh, working or writing for the IPCC in 2000. So that's about 20 years ago. And at that time, it was quite different. Uh, at that time, that was before the Nobel Peace Prize uh, it, of 2007 uh, with uh, Al Gore. It was fairly quiet. But after 2007, there's a lot of uh, more, a lot more media coverage. There's a lot of interest, uh, and uh, so this one, uh, the sixth assessment report, was uh, really, uh, you know, intense. I would say, plus the pandemic, uh, past two years, so it's really quite a challenge. But uh, well, in the end, we we finished the report uh, this week. You mentioned the intense working conditions of doing that through the pandemic. We've had our own popular accounts of what the headlines are from that sixth report, but it's a great opportunity for us to hear directly from one of the authors what you think um, are the real headlines. What's changed between the sixth report and the fifth, for example? Yeah, yeah, Peter, uh, in terms of uh, the report, uh, it really builds on AR5, uh, perhaps one of the uh, one of the 
highlights of this one is that uh, the window is fast closing. The window for action is fast closing. And therefore, we need concerted, global concerted action. That's the sort of one or two sentences summary of the whole report, that the window is closing fast. Human activities are threatening. Uh, climate in, uh, human-induced climate change is threatening uh, natural and human systems. And the window for action is closing fast. And therefore, uh, we need uh, to cooperate as a global community. That would be the sort of uh, one or two sentence uh, summary of the whole report. Mm. And it's so it's so devastating to hear you say that. I think particularly as you know somebody who is in their early mid twenties, uh, you know, to hear mm -hmm. you say that is 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 scary. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, how how it is working with a group of scientists on that report. Does it feel really frustrating that the world hasn't caught on quicker or because you've been doing this for 40 years haven't you so it's a huge amount of time to be looking at those issues and for it to still not be getting uh, significantly better yeah uh, well I, uh, I've been working on climate change for more than 20 years and I uh, in a sense I, I have come to terms with uh, the sort of delay or the the gap between the science and, and action policy and local action so there is that gap and again, pre-2007, there were, there were much less people uh, listening. It's just like an echo chamber among, among us scientists and you know, selected policymakers. But after 2007, uh, I, I saw that there was really this massive shift and more people are listening. So in that sense, uh, perhaps because of my age as well, uh, I, I can see that there's hope. But uh, the wheel turns slowly. That that can be frustrating. Uh, and I don't know, maybe younger scientists uh, would feel this frustration more. But uh, for me, I've seen so much uh, improvement uh, in terms of awareness and, uh, you know, more people uh, really uh, joining the, the call for action on, on stopping global warming. So, uh, and, and that's why having seen that arc, from basically almost nothing to now, this kind of uh, resonance to, to the global community. So I'm encouraged. So I guess I feel sort of, uh, there's frustration, yeah. Uh, of course, I want more action, but uh, at the same time, I've seen so much improvement uh, over the past 10 or 15 years. Mm. Do you think your perspective is particularly sharp because you live in a part of the world that is almost more directly impacted by the changing climate than temperate countries, for example? Yeah, Peter, that's that, that's a I think uh, a very uh, you know valid uh, point. Uh, just look, sort of self-reflecting. I realize uh, climate risks and climate hazards are everyday you know, part of my life, daily life. Uh, we get 10 tropical cyclones every year. We get El Nino, La Nina. So all, almost all kinds of climate disasters happen in my country. And so even without climate change, we are concerned about climate. People are dying by the thousands, uh, even now, not even in the future. And so to us, it's, it's a daily reality. Mm. 
I was just going to ask, I was doing some, some research about this before our call. And I know that the Philippines is responsible for only around 0.3, 0.4% of global emissions. And as you've just said, it's one of the countries most vulnerable to climate change. I'm wondering how you've, have you seen those effects yet? Have people, you know, been impacted by it and sort of what, yeah, is it something that, that Filipinos are sort of very, very aware of? That's correct, Brioni. Our country emits less than half of, of a percent, less than 0.5% of the global greenhouse gas emissions, really a tiny fraction. On the flip side, we are one of the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And so in our country, the discourse of climate change is more of adaptation, not mitigation. And I guess that's one of the major differences uh, between developed nations. Uh, perhaps in the UK, uh, people are more interested about how to reduce greenhouse gases, carbon taxes, and all those kinds of things. But here, there's very limited conversation on that. Uh, the main topic for conversation is how do we adapt? How do we become more resilient to climate hazards? Uh, because we are a developing country, we have less resources, and yet we are hit badly. We contribute very little to the problem because we emit so little, and yet uh, there's that kind of asymmetry, and yet we get a lot of the, uh, you know, the adverse uh, impacts of climate change. So climate justice uh, resonates to a lot of people here. Could you just spell out for people, you talk about your daily life and how it's impacted. Could you just spell out those impacts uh, for the Philippines um, across the board? Because obviously there's the disruption of increased frequency and intensity of storms and typhoons, but there are other things as well. Could you just give us an idea of what those impacts are? Well, uh, per Peter, perhaps the most dramatic comes from uh, typhoons. Uh, the most dramatic impacts uh, come from strong cyclones uh, every year. We get 10 of them so on the average. So it's practically an annual event every typhoon season. Uh, one strong typhoon will, one or more strong typhoons will hit the country. And there are many cascading effects of one single typhoon, like Typhoon Haiyan, one of the strongest to hit land with about 300 kilometers per hour, per hour of wind speed in 2013, killed almost 10,000 people. And the damages was like a billion dollars or so. So there's an there's effect on loss of lives, uh, it can be thousands of people dying. There's an effect on the economy of a large fraction of our GDP is lost every year because of these typhoons. We could have developed faster uh, without, of course, uh, these uh, typhoons hitting us every year. Uh, so those are the mega, uh, sort of the macro, macro level. But at the micro level, you can imagine uh, flooding, storm surge, loss of agricultural crops. We lose a lot of our agricultural productivity. Uh, our main crop is rice. And you know, rice, when there's uh, flooding, when there's strong winds, uh, they easily um, die and, and, and therefore we lose uh, a lot of our food, uh, food supply as well. So there are 
uh, these uh, impacts. Uh, in living in Manila, Manila is a very flood-prone area. So uh, every monsoon season, typhoon season, that you know, it's gridlock, traffic stops everything, the floods stop everything, and people just stay at home. So classes are suspended. So this can really disrupt uh, one's life uh, on a kind of daily, uh, uh, daily basis. That sounds extremely distressing. <laughs> and I think, you know, mm-hmm. we do have some of those mm-hmm. impacts here in the UK and we do have it in some, you know, in Europe and other developing countries. But um, and more and more, I think the news captures, you know, the fires in Australia or America is more and more coming on our radar. But I think to hear it said like that and, you know, to sort of realise the kind mm-hmm. of direct impact that is having on people's day-to-day lives, on their businesses, on their families, on their homes. You know, it's it's very much more in your face, as you say, than it than it is here where we're talking about mitigating rather than adapting. Yeah, that's correct. You mentioned climate justice, Rodel, and I know your Christian faith has animated your career as a scientist. Could could you tell us something of how you feel about climate justice and in particular I guess how you deal with the issue of of anger to be candid yeah well as you know a lot of uh, perhaps more on the global south uh, part of this uh, uh, issue and debate under the UNFCCC negotiations is uh, is common but differentiated responsibilities. And uh, a lot of uh, people from our part of the world uh, looks at the wealthy nations who have emitted much more carbon uh, in the atmosphere to take the lead uh, in, in, in addressing climate change. Uh, and uh, of course, there's a lot of truth to that, uh, that uh, there's much less emission coming from our part of the world. But on the other hand, I also see the point that other developing nations are now contributing more, uh, much more, uh, because they're also developing uh, very rapidly. And so, uh, uh, and so, Peter, the way I look at it as a Christian is that it's like we're in a big boat. Uh, I don't want to say Noah's Ark, but we're like in one big boat. And there are big holes, there are small holes, and we should plug the big holes first, uh, so that the boat won't sink. But if we don't plug the smaller holes, the boat will still sink uh, over time. And so I think we should all contribute uh, to the problem or to the mitigation, uh, to mitigating uh, greenhouse gases. And, uh, and, and there's no easy answer. And, and therefore dialogue and, uh, and negotiation in good faith, I think is essential. So I, I have no easy answer to that, and uh, but I realize that uh, there's got to be that aspect of justice as well. But as you know, it's hard to define justice, and especially when you talk about quantities, how much carbon or how much should people compensate uh, nations which are vulnerable, because part of the talk is compensation, loss and damage, and so on. And when you talk about money, uh, it really becomes difficult. So. Yeah, for me as a Christian, I think we should just continue to dialogue and talk uh, in in good faith uh, to uh, our uh, our brothers and sisters in different uh, nations of the world. I think it's really it's really interesting to hear you say that because 
perhaps part of the reason that you can approach this with a sense of let's all work together, let's do this in dialogue is because maybe you feel that you need to forgive those nations that have emitted so much. Um, And I just wonder, yeah, what the role of forgiveness is within climate justice, because another part of me thinks, well, you shouldn't necessarily have to forgive (laughs) big nations who Mm -hmm. are ruining your beautiful country. And I wonder how you hold that intention. <laughs> well, again, that that's a very fascinating thought, uh, Brioni, this forgiveness. I haven't really thought of it that way. Uh, perhaps for me, it's more of knowing that, that we are all fallen creatures. Uh, we're sinners, as the Bible uh, say. So we really uh, can perhaps uh, understand why people will do things. But at the same time, we're made in the image of God. We're capable of thinking, reasoning. And uh, we've seen in other spheres of life that nations have negotiated successfully. Like in the case of ozone, the ozone layer, uh, nations of the world have uh, you know, united. And again, it can be acrimonious and, and really tough negotiations. But in the end, there's some success. Mm. And so I'm not giving up yet on, on humanity being able to see there are common danger and, you know, acting rationally uh, in, spi- in spite of the, I'm sure, many irrationality uh, out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so again, no easy answers. That That's probably what I feel more. But we have to keep on trying uh, for, for the sake of all of us. Talking about easy answers, Rodel, there was a certain amount of skepticism, I think, in the latest report about the role that technology could play in pulling carbon from the atmosphere or in other kinds of things. Where, where do you stand on that spectrum of optimism or pessimism about technological uh, ways, as you would put it, to plug either the small holes or the big holes in the boat? Do you think that we've placed too much reliance on the possibility of finding technical uh, fixes that will that will essentially remove the need for us to change our way of of living. Well, I, I believe that we should explore the suite of options available to us. I am perhaps more biased towards nature based uh, solutions, those that use the natural ecosystems to to uh, well to mitigate and as well as to adapt to climate change, uh, Peter, but. On the other hand, knowing that you know God has given us nature, but we contribute culture or you know technology, right? Even from Genesis, uh, the, the the work of Adam and Eve was to uh, to cultivate the garden and to contribute the, their share in terms of uh, culture and technology, I believe. And so I'm I'm uh, cautiously optimistic that uh, this is part of the solution to discover new technologies that would uh, help us uh, mitigate climate change. So I, again, I would be on the more optimistic side of things that if we com- combine all of these uh, nature-based solutions plus innovations coming from technology, because these problems came in the first place from technology, right? When we discovered fossil fuels and steam engine and so on, which brought a lot of conveniences to people around the world. And I cannot imagine living, you know, 150 years ago uh, in terms of medicine, dentistry, 
and other health-related uh, technology or the absence of those technology. So uh, I think we should move forward and uh, face the reality that you know we have these problems brought by science and technology, but science and technology is still there and uh, innovating and 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 again, who knows? And uh, some new technology may be discovered that will really help uh, remove uh, the problem. So I'm not closing my eyes, uh, I guess, is my point uh, to that possibility. Yeah. As I did before, I wonder if you'd mind if I asked you what specific technologies you are currently aware of that you think are are giving some hope and are worth exploring well on the more i i'm not an engineer uh peter so i won't claim any expertise on this but uh, i look at for example uh, the success of electric vehicles in well in your part of the world and in the u.s uh just 10 years ago maybe we, we wouldn't imagine uh, that this will happen and now there's a lot of electric vehicles uh and there are game changers. A uh, hundred years ago, it's hard to believe we have internet. You know, we can fly <laughs> uh, from one end of the world to the other in 24 hours. Uh, and and so uh, this happened in in a hundred years. And so in the next half century or a few decades, uh, there could be really massive game changing technology in terms of efficiency, uh, in terms of energy source. Uh, for me, that that's that's huge. If we can discover cleaner energy with uh, le- with much less emissions or with even zero emissions, if that's even possible. Uh, so people never dream of, of nuclear power. Not that I advocate nuclear power all the time, uh, but uh, people never dream these kinds of uh, uh, technology uh, just 100 years ago. So uh, we, we, we may be surprised at what's on the horizon, I think. Mm. Rodal, I'm really finding the way that you're speaking is so encouraging. I think so often you hear even the IPCC report, the headline flashed up on my phone saying, you know, the window is closing and it sort of fills you with this paralyzing fear. And you're thinking, what can I do as a small individual um, to sort of tackle any of these big problems? But I think hearing what you're saying it's it does it is encouraging um and it does kind of fill me with a bit more hope about the situation i was wondering if you could tell us more about sort of where your hope comes from we often ask our guests this on the podcast and i think perhaps you work with a lot of scientists who are less hopeful and i just yeah wondered about about that for that part uh, brioni i think my hope uh, springs mainly from my christian convictions and the Bible. I know that the end of the story will be victorious. Uh, and uh, I know that God will renew the earth. And uh, because we are made in the image of God, I believe humans are capable of so much uh, good. Now, obviously, I also believe they're capable of so much evil as well. But uh, so what we do is we try to uh, check the evil side or the bad side but we try to promote the, the good side. Uh, and so uh, I firmly believe both in man, so therefore, and humans, I mean, and therefore that is where my optimism lies. Uh, uh, so I, I don't know if that 
uh, that explains my my perspective. But uh, that, I think that's where it's coming from. I know that these aren't casual answers you're giving, uh, Rodel, and I know that you've actually given a lot of thought and study, as it were, to your Christian faith. And I often, in conversation with Western working scientists, hear them lament the time pressure that they're under, particularly now that fundraising is often a big part of what they have to do and grant writing and all the rest of it. It seems to me that um, an earlier generation of scientists who were Christians often found more time or made more time for developing an equal sophistication in their Christian thinking as they did in their scientific expertise. How have you found it balancing those two uh, requirements, those two modes of being as a person in your own life? And would you have any suggestions for, for younger scientists, early career scientists who are grappling with these questions? Yeah, yeah Peter, uh, for me, part of the answer is that I was really active in the church. Uh, in fact, uh, even now I, I am a pastor of a church and I've been serving in the same church for more than 40 years. And so from day one of my career is also almost exactly also day one of my serving the church. So I've been doing both practically all my life, uh, uh, teaching in the university, doing research on the one hand, and on the other hand, every Sunday, you know, preaching and teaching in the church. And I have not been uh, a conflicted person <laughs> throughout these years. I see my Christian convictions uh, helping me appreciate nature and the study of nature even more because I know God created nature and I'm just really observing what God created and studying what God created. And so, uh, and plus my experience in, in research in science also helps me to appreciate the Bible better, uh, appreciate, uh, you know, the, the word of God, because uh, I also study it like, like a, you know, a, like a scientist, uh, I, I check and look and, you know, study the Bible as well. So uh, I've never been in, in such sort of inner conflicts that people uh, experience, perhaps because from the very earliest of my Christian life and my career life, uh, they're both together. So I've uh, lived, I think, wonderfully by God's grace, uh, uh, enjoying uh, the fruits of both uh, both worlds in some ways. So. Yeah, I'm really blessed uh, in that sense. You've mentioned the Bible several times. Are there particular passages you found helpful or inspirational? You mean as a scientist, uh, Peter, or as a Christian? Yes, I would perhaps will say as a scientist, but in any way, are there particular wellsprings of scriptural wisdom that you return to or that have been particularly influential in your working life or, or in your life? as it were, now grappling with these severe impacts of uh, climate change on your daily life. I remember myself trying to get around Manila not too long ago and finding the immense uh -huh. difficulties of, and frustrations of that with, with flooding and traffic jams and all the rest. So are there particular scriptures you return to or that have been important for you? Early in my Christian life, I found Matthew six thirty three really helpful. Uh, seek uh, at that time it was the King James version we were using decades ago. <laughs> seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And for me, that really gave me the right priority in life. 
that this is the first, the others come second. So my relationship with God is first, my career is second, and all other things are second to that. And that sort of uh, helped me, I guess, uh, find stability uh, throughout my life, uh, Peter. But of course, there are so many other verses out there, I mean, in the Bible, that I, I, I treasure. But that, that's one that really comes to mind when I recall my formative years as a Christian. Riddell, we've we've spoken a lot about climate and um, yeah about climate change. And I was just wondering maybe if you could talk a bit about biodiversity, maybe particularly in your own country, and also about some of the so-called nature-based solutions to climate change that we so often talk about. Have you seen any good examples of that where you live? Well, the Philippines is a unique country. It's one of the most diverse countries of the world. It's a mega diversity country, but at the same time, it's a hot spot and. I think only two countries share that distinction. There's so much danger to the biodiversity here. And so we are a hotspot uh, in spite of the fact that we are a mega diversity country. And so, uh, again, as a Christian, I think it's uh, incumbent upon us to, uh, to support bio- biodiversity conservation efforts. And uh, in our part of the world, uh, forest protection, uh, forest land restoration, protection of coral reefs, and other marine ecosystems are very important. And this is also part of the nature-based solutions uh, for climate change. For example, if we have healthy watersheds with forest cover, then we have better hydrology. There's uh, much less uh, flooding, more stable water supply, uh, less erosion. And uh, so if there is strong rainfall or heavy rainfall, then our watersheds will be able to absorb a lot of those uh, water and less will be flowing in downstream areas. Uh, The same is true for our coral reefs. They provide livelihoods for small fisher folks. And so if we protect them, we add resilience, climate resilience to more than 50% of our people who live in these coastal zones and uh, many of them among the poorest of the poor. And so uh, protecting biodiversity is all about uh, providing livelihoods, strengthening the economy, and giving us uh, climate resilience uh, you know, as a society, uh, as well as local communities and indigenous peoples who live in many of our mountain areas. Uh, therefore, I believe it's so important to conserve uh, our natural ecosystems uh, in our country. For those particularly interested in Russia, from the Russia family around the world, if you had a message that you wanted to, to give, what, what would that be uh, standing where you stand and living where you live and with your, with your, now that you, it's been how long on the board now? Nearly two years, I think. So with yeah. that perspective that you've gained. Well, my message to our Arosha friends, um, members and friends is that we persevere in our work uh, in uh, caring for God's creation it's uh, fulfilling, it's uh, challenging, I know, and there are many obstacles along the way. But uh, near, well, nearing the end of my life, uh, I think uh, I have no regrets. And it, it has been really a great blessing to be working on, um, on caring for creation, studying creation uh, as a Christian. So that would be my message to our friends and members of Arosha family. Riddell, it sounds like you've got lots of great work to do still. So. 
<laughs> Thank you for all that you've you've brought to Arosha and also to the wider, you know, your wider work. Um, I think your sort of hopefulness and positivity and and faith is really inspiring. And I'm sure you have inspired many people along the way in, in the face of something that's extremely quite well, it's terrifying and and enormous. And and yet you've kind of approached it with this you know, an acknowledgement of that, but also a real peace, I think, and and positivity. Thanks, Brioni. It's only by God's grace, of course. Thanks for listening to the Field Notes podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. And there's more information about this podcast and about Arosha at arosha.org. So do join us next time. Mm-hmm.